0: Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor, and this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana, over the past week, and we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers, as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. First question we have this week is a math question, so get your calculators ready. The cook's tally shows 141 grilled chicken breasts for lunch. However, the hospital anticipates a 2% increase in hospital census during this time and the food service company restricts food waste to no more than three percent of waste. Now how many chicken breasts should the cook prepare based on this information and answers provided? So we have three answers. We have 135, 141, 145, and 150. So this is a situational math question. So if you're reading it and you're like, oh my God, I hate this already. You're not alone. But remember with the math, we really want you to work on it weekly. Really work to understand it because if you're going into the math and just going, I hate math, I can promise you the math's never going to get easier. So definitely check out one of the math recorded courses if this is a trouble area for you. But let's break down what it's asking us. Okay, so it told us that Right now, there's 141 patients who ordered chicken. But we're expecting the hospital census to increase by 2%. So we can kind of be saying, well, that would kind of, you know, say all of the food orders are going to increase 2% proportional to the amount of patients. So if I have 141 chicken breasts and we want to increase it by 2%, all I need to do is do 141 times 1.02 and that's going to tell me that if I have a 2% increase in the chicken breast, I would need about 144 chicken breasts. So that's how many I would need. if I, And if I made 144, I would have no food waste. But that second part of the question is saying we want no more than 3% food waste. So that would be taking the number that I'm making over the 144. So let me look at my questions. So Right away, I can take away 135 and 141. That's not going to be enough chicken. I need 144. And then I'm stuck with, okay, well, do I want to do 145 or do I want to do 150? So my question would be, which one gets me less than 3% food waste? So how I would calculate the food waste is taking the amount I prepared. So let's do 145 first divided by 144. And so that's telling me I'm making about 101% of what I need, so only 1% food waste. So that one works, but let's double check. Let's see what D would get us. 150 chicken breasts divided by 144, that's going to be 104, so 4% food waste. So our best answer here would be C, 145. And this question is one where you don't want to be afraid to loop back and see kind of you know what was it actually asking you because it can get very very confusing and these math questions again i always recommend with the math don't be afraid to write it out writing it out is going to help make sure that you are actually able that you're actually able to understand it next question we have is about foodborne illness what is the difference between a foodborne infection in a foodborne intoxication. And foodborne illness is definitely a topic that gets really tricky because there's so much to know. So definitely check out the recorded class. It's only $10 on my website. But understanding the difference between foodborne infection and foodborne intoxication is important because that can be a distinguishing factor between different ones. We want to be thinking when we're studying the foodborne illnesses, what is different about each one, right? Because knowing that it causes nausea, diarrhea is not going to help you pick out which one it is. So here's a few kind of key things to help separate whether it's a foodborne infection or foodborne intoxication. So first off, with an infection, the source of this is going to be from bacteria, a virus, a parasite. And it's to, these things have invaded and multiplied in the food and then in your intestines. So these are transmittable. They spread from person to person. Incubation time tends to be hours to days. Symptoms tend to be things like diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain and cramps, fever. And factors that usually are causing them are things like inadequate cooking, cross-contamination, poor personal hygiene, bare, hair, bare hand contact. So, you know, with these, we want to think that, you know, a lot of the time the sources that either we didn't kill off the bacteria in the food, hello, salmonella in raw cookie dough, right? Or I'm the worker and I have dirty hands and I'm touching it. Or it wasn't washed from the field and now it's touching different things. So very transmittable. Then we have our intoxications. So intoxications are going to be toxins that are naturally kind of present in the food. So there's not any invasion or multiplication. It's just there. So the incubation time for these tends to be a lot quicker, minutes to hours compared to the infection. So that's a big distinguishing factor. Symptoms tend to be more severe, right? So you're still going to have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, Um, but then you're also going to have scary things like respiratory failure, you know, motor dysfunction, very severe. Um, and factors that contribute to this tend to be time and temperature abuse, so inadequate cooking or improper handling. So, when you're going through and studying the different types, you want to be thinking is this an infection? Is this an intoxication? Too, and remembering the different characteristics about each one. Next up, we got another math. We are feeling very mathy with this week's practice question sets. What is the edible portion price for two pounds of ground beef? If the as purchased is $3 per pound and the EP yield is, six, is 0.64 pounds of cooked, drained, lean meat. So the first thing to think about is what is my equation here? So I'm when I'm thinking about edible portion price, it's raw food cost over my edible portion weight. But what I like to think about here is I like to think of my numerator as the amount of money that I handed the cashier. And this stops me from accidentally putting the wrong price. So if I'm looking through here and saying, well, how much money did I hand the cashier? Well, I bought two pounds of beef and they were 3 dollars each. So I do $3.99 times two. And that's telling me that I handed the cashier $7.98. And then for my denominator, I'm looking for, well, what's the EP weight? So this one is hidden because the way it's worded is saying EP yield is 0.64 pounds. And it's really hoping with this question that you're reading it fast and you're seeing yield and you're like, oh, percent yield. But percent yield is a percent. This is saying pounds. So it's saying it that this meat that I bought yielded or produced 0.6 pounds, So that would be my denominator. That's what I was left over, right? This is a terrible, uh, you know, a terrible yield when I'm, only, I'm starting with two pounds and only kind of left with a quarter of what I'm getting. So if I do what I handed the cashier, $7.98 divided by the total amount of meat that I was left with, divide by 0.64, that's telling me that I'm going to be having a price of $12.46 per pound. If it was just asking me it not per pound, then that would be my $7.98. So you gotta watch what it's asking for. Next up, we have a question from Ann. And this is definitely a popular one I see people get stuck on. This is our scoop sizes. So here's the question. We have a number 12 scoop was used to serve 600 servings of mashed potatoes instead of a number 16 scoop. How many servings will they be short? So with this one, what we wanna kind of start by doing is saying, well, how many ounces are these scoops? So we're saying, the first thing is we're saying, okay, a number 12 scoop was used accidentally. So how do I find the ounces from a scoop? Uh, All I have to do is do 32, divided by the scoop number. So that's two ounces for the number 16. The number 16 would, uh, sorry, it's two ounces for the number 16. And then for the number 12, which was the one I used mistakenly, 32 divided by 12, that's going to be $2, um, sorry, 2.6 ounces. So what I want to be thinking about is originally I was supposed to get 600 servings that were each two ounces. So I should have started out with 600 times two ounces. I should have started out with 1200 ounces. And then I'm thinking, okay, well I still have 1200 ounces of mashed potatoes. So if I'm scooping out with the 2.66 scoop, how many scoops am I gonna get? So I divide that by 2.66. And so that tells me I'm only going to be able to scoop out 151 servings, which makes sense because it's a bigger scoop. So my question here is, how many am my shorts? So 600 minus 451. and this is going to be 100 and 49 that I would be um, 149 that I would be being short. And your answers might be slightly different depending on how you round. So like when I look at the answer bank that's provided here, there's 90, 25, 210, 156. So I would go with the 156, even though I got 149 because likely it's just from rounding a little, um, it's just from rounding a little bit differently here. So don't worry about that too, too much. Okay, The next question we have is, What's the most energy efficient between a convection oven and a steam jacket kettle? And so both of these we want to be thinking of are definitely efficient. A good way to be thinking about this too is kind of like, well, what is it for? So a lot of the time we're thinking about with efficiency, we're thinking about you know keeping an even cooking temperature. We're kind of thinking about the speed at which it cooks and. we want to be thinking about these we need to think about well what are they so the convection oven has a fan in it so the fan is helping you to kind of move the air through all the food so a lot of the time you're using this for like cooking like pastries and different things too so it's going to be really even cooking temperature which is really really nice heats it all evenly now a steam jacket kettle kind of looks like a pot and if you can't imagine one definitely take a pause and google it but so it's a pot and then there's an inner and outer lining. So there, it allows steam to run kind of completely around the pot. So the steam isn't touching the food, but it's in, the, in between the layers of metal and heating it up very efficiently because it's heating it up from all sides, except the, for the top, of course. But so this is very, very efficient compared to just doing kind of a pot on a stove. So a steam jacket kettle is gonna be used for making things like soup, potatoes, boiling things, making sauces too. Um, So both are definitely efficient. Another really efficient one too is gonna be the tilting skillet because you you can turn the temperatures exactly kind of what you need them to be. Next question, we have a poorly controlled asthmatic. So having asthma has been admitted to the hospital with acute asthma flare you know a long history of prednisone use. What nutrients would they be at risk of? So anytime you're hearing zone, you know, cortisone, pregnozone, um, you should be thinking steroids. And so steroids are going to put us at really, really high risk for bone, for bone disease. So when we're thinking about what nutrients they'd be at risk of deficiency of, definitely calcium and vitamin D, would be great answers. Another question that they can ask around this are like, how would their labs look? So anytime you're taking steroids, it's going to cause your body to break down and have a lot of gluconeogenesis. You're breaking down a lot of your glycogen too. And so that is going to cause you to have high blood sugars, which can give you steroid-induced diabetes. Okay. The next question I had was, I put up an abstract, which is Too long to read for here, but I said, you know, what are the keywords to help you identify what type of study this is? And so when we're thinking about our different types of studies, you want to make sure that you're having a firm grasp on what the different types of studies are and kind of what are some keywords that you can use to kind of recognize the studies. And so when we're thinking about studies, we have six main types. So the first one is a meta-analysis, which I like to kind of think of as almost like the summary of what the research is saying. It's using data that's been previously published before. You're not doing an actual experiment. So keywords that you would see here, for example, are things like systematic review, previously published data, available evidence, previous studies, consensus, inclusion, exclusion criteria. The next one we have is a randomized control trial. So this is when i'm in doing an experiment i'm controlling things so things we would words we would hear around describing this are things like randomized experimental causation randomized control groups placebo double blind crossover parallel all those should be making you think rct then we have quasi experimental so quasi experimental is another experimental one right shocked it says it in the name but they're not randomized. So I'm still doing an intervention, but it's not randomized. So words we might hear around here is not randomized, experimental, divided into two groups, intervention, control group. But the big difference between this and an RCT is noticing that they are not randomized. Then we have case control. So case control, I'm looking at people who have a disease and people who do not. And I'm going back in their histories and saying, okay, what could be a cause of this disease? You know, what are the differences between their histories that would put someone at more risk for something like lung cancer? Oh, smoking. That group smoked more than this group. So for quasi-experimental, we—I mean, sorry, not quasi-experimental, case-control—we'd be hearing things like cases, control, retrospective, compared histories, disease conditions, exposures. Next, we have a cohort study. So a cohort study can be prospective or retrospective, but I'm following this group you know, in, for a period of time and kind of observing what's going on with them. So words we'd hear is, you know, group of, Danish mothers, cohort of, prospective, retrospective, you know, followed throughout time. That would be our cohort. And then our last one is cross-sectional. So I always think cross-sectional one point in time. So this is things like a survey or questionnaire. Be hearing things like one time, gathering data on a single day. So you definitely want to be able to recognize some of the keywords, because then when it's giving you questions like an abstract, you know, or a few lines and saying, what type of study is this? too. you you're going to be able to really recognize it. Next question we have, your inventory turnover ratio is found to be 1.3. What does this mean in terms of your inventory utilization? What should you do to improve it? So with inventory turnover rate, our equation here is cost of goods sold over our average inventory. We want it to be between two and four. And what I like to think about when I'm teaching my students about inventory turnover rate is I like to be thinking about that this is like the amount of times that you go to um, the grocery store in like one month. So going twice a month, that's great, you know, going four times a month, sure, but you don't wanna be like me and go to the grocery store like every day. you know. But you also don't wanna only go once a month and then spend all your money there and then it's all stuck in your inventory. So if we have an inventory turnover ratio of 1.3, that is too low. So this is me having too much money in my inventory. I'm really never going to the store. And we don't wanna have our money in inventory because that means we can't access it. And so what should I do so if my inventory turnover ratio is low, I should buy less every shop. So I have to have more shops in totals. So like this would be if we're talking about like, oh, my regular shopping is $400 a month. Instead of buying $400 worth at the beginning of the month, what we'd be saying is, okay, let's buy $150, you know, let's buy $100 just to kind of spread it out so that we're not spending all our money. Now, on the other side of that, if my inventory turnover ratio was seven, I would want to buy more at each, at each time point, too, to help make sure that I'm able to cover all of my expenses, too. For a patient on TPN, give an example of what would be included in each section of A-dime. So recently, I've been having more and more students get questions on, like, A-dime and nutrition um, care process on their exams. So it's a good topic to review. So, right, with A time, that's our assessment, diagnosis, intervention, and then monitoring and evaluating. So if I have a TPN patient, in my assessment, and this is my favorite part of my job, this is like my investigation. This is me reviewing their chart, talking with the patient, looking at labs, doing a nutrition-focused physical exam, calculating calories and protein needs. You know, all of this is in my assessment. I'm kind of gathering all my data. My diagnosis is only going to be my PS statement. So this would be something like altered GI function related to small bowel obstruction, as evidenced by imaging and TPN dependence. In my intervention, this would be me saying we should give TPN, we keep patient NPO, you know, and give my TPN prescription. And then a monitoring and evaluating would be things like monitoring labs, monitoring weights, you know, if we want maybe I want diabetes you know, to follow them too. So it's really helpful to kind of think of an example of each one so that you can be thinking about, well, which section. But a tip is to remember that your meat and potatoes are in your assessment. This is really where you're doing all your work. This is where you're doing all your math. But in your intervention, that's when you'd be saying, okay, give this diet, you know, give them a high-calorie, high-protein diet. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana R.D. every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, DanaJFNutrition.com to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.